distinguishing, you know, between something that I just love doing, but the minute I turn it into my J-O-B, all of a sudden I hate doing it. I have built businesses that have ended up being, you know, I loved it when it was just my, my hobby on the side or something I'd love to do. And then when I, I you know, I, I basically said, this has to pay my rent, this has to take care of my family. It took a lot of the joy out of the process. So I thought about this a lot. And like you, I, I don't believe that just because something sparks you means that it necessarily should be the thing that also um, gives you your living. I think when you can do that, when those line up in a way where it feels good and they're working really together, it's an amazing thing. Successes, welcome back to another edition of Success Fundamentals, where we talk about success and all its nuances in its most raw form. See, normally we say we have a special guest, but today it's very, this is not even special. I would say we have a, a legend in the game um, <laughs> on our show who has graced us with his presence. Um, he is an award-winning author. He is one of the, he is a host of probably one of the top podcasts in the world um, called The Good Life Project. So if you haven't heard of that, please download that. He's also the author of his most recent book, Sparked. Um, please go get that as well. And he is the founder of Spark Endeavors. We have none other than the legend himself, Jonathan Fields. Jonathan, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, thanks so much for inviting me and for that um, that that fantastic intro. I think we should just end there right now because it's only downhill <laughs> after that. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, John, <clears throat> uh, today's topic is unique specifically to you because I have questions about this. I know Brian told me that he has some questions about this as well. Um, mm -hmm. and, it's a, and it's about how to find what sparks you. Um, in, your, in your book, you have, the, you have people um, where, you discover your, your, you know, where you discover your unique imprint for what makes you come alive. And you hear a lot about in order for you to do your best work, you have to have, you know, uh, you have to do something that that you're passionate about, or that you, or, or where you're, or focus on where your efforts lie. So, when you talk about that, how do you help people understand and find the spark that drives them? Yeah, it's such a good question, and one that I've been exploring for literally a few decades now. Um, you know, I've I've always been fascinated with this the field of work because so many of us spend the majority of our waking hours doing this thing. And with retirement being sort of uh, this nebulous thing that nobody's ever really sure they're going to hit these days, um, you know, I've always been curious if it's the thing that that we spend doing for most of our waking hours for our entire lives. How can we make it as meaningful, as purpose fueled, as joyful and excited and energizing as possible? So I've deepened into the question and done a lot of work and research um, over the last 20, 25 years or so. And, and in the more recent chunk of that, we started to, to ask this really interesting question. And I didn't know what the answer would be, which is, is there some universal set of imprints or impulses that we all have that determine um, what kind of work gives us that feeling of being sparked or coming alive? Because if there were, and we could identify them and then map them and then create tools that would help people discover what theirs were, well, then it would shortcut the process of being able to actually say yes to more of that and no to the stuff that wasn't that and get us to a place where we were doing more of what makes us come alive more quickly and then be able to spend more of our time 
actually doing that. So we deepened into this question and over time came up with these 10 different imprints or, or archetypes. Um, what we realized is that, you know, like it's a set of impulses for work or for effort that gives us a feeling of being alive. And then each one of them has a certain set of kind of fairly common tendencies and behaviors and preferences that wrap around those impulses that form archetypes. So I started calling mm. them sparkotypes because it's kind of just a, a, fun, a fun way to shorthand the archetype for work that sparks you. That caught on. And um, then back in 2018, you know, after sharing this with a lot of people from you know, like next door neighbors to leadership teams and organizations and people saying, there's something really powerful here that we're not seeing, we're not learning from other tools. We took the entire year to develop an assessment that would do two things. It would help us both deepen into the research and validate these and learn a ton more about these 10 different imprints. And also it would serve as a tool for anybody to be able to actually just find it online, take it for free and discover theirs. And we released that at the end of 2018. And as we're having this conversation about somewhere around 675,000 people have now completed this assessment, generating close to 35 million data points um, oh, wow. And just layers and layers and layers of insight about these 10 sparkotypes and how they show up in different people and different combinations and what happens when you honor them, when you center them in the work that they're doing. So this, the topic that you're focusing on here and you're like, how do you actually find a new work that sparks you? It's, you know, I think there are probably a lot of things that contribute to it, but in my mind, if you can identify what this sort of like innate impulse is. And then just really look at the work that you're doing and say, how can I do more of this? Whether it's in my current job, whether it's in a new opportunity, whether I'm going to start my own thing. Mm -hmm. It's a big piece of the puzzle. Um, and it's been amazing just to be a part of this adventure in, in discovery and service along the way and impact. Hmm. So Jonathan, what was your goal going into this? What even inspired this research to, to begin with? Yeah. So a couple of things. Um, one is just a natural curiosity. And, and with, with research like this, very often it starts by scratching my own itch, you know? Mm -hmm. um, and for me, in no small part, you know, I mentioned that this has been a question in some form and part of my professional life in some form for over two decades. I can actually trace some of the really early inquiry back to 9-11. Um, so as, as we have this conversation, I'm actually in Colorado, but I'm a lifelong New Yorker. We just came out here fairly recently and I lived in the city for my entire adult life, really. And so I was there for 9-11. Um, yeah. you know, and it was a, a brutal experience. And I knew somebody who went to work that day and didn't come home that evening. And it was a moment that really, it brought so many people to their knees and it brought me to a place of really asking those big existential questions and realizing that, we have one shot through this thing we call life, you know, and to the extent that we can spend it um, in a way that both nourishes us while also making a difference, hopefully for other people, then that's, it's an important pursuit. It's an important question to ask, how can we do that? So the seeds were really planted for a lot of this work more than two decades ago in the weeks and days and months following 9-11 for me. And it's become a bit of an enduring quest that's changed form and shape over the years. 
And what's interesting is that as we started to actually much more, you know, in the last five years or so, develop these impulses or these imprints, what I learned about myself is that I am what I would call a maker. That's my spark type. And the impulse for the maker is to make ideas manifest. It's a this really fiercely generative impulse. Like I, I walk down the street, I'm like, I could create this, I could create that, I could create this. Mm. Um, so, so part of the you know the work for me was just deeply personal. I want to I want to use my my life well to the extent that I have control over it. Um, and then part of it is this maker impulse to say, could I actually both create a body of work, um, answer questions that would help me, maybe help a lot of people, and then build structure, build tools, build experiences, build ideas around it in a way that you know, it would allow me to stand in my own personal impulse and work from that place to create something that would go out into the world and make a difference for other people. So mm. were there any, were there any ideas that you had prior to getting this data that were confirmed when you got the data? And were there any surprises where you said, Oh, I didn't see that coming. Wow. Yeah. I mean, um, there were a lot of ideas that were completely rejected as so often happens. You know, I think every, every project, every quest, every, you know, like creation adventure starts with just a metric ton of questions and assumptions. And what if this, what if that, what if this, what if that? And most of them are disproven along the way. I think any entrepreneur or any founder has learned that, you know, you start with a set of basic assumptions. Um, even in the work that you guys do, you know, you start with a basic understanding of who you are, what your life is, you know, you want it to be. Mm-hmm. What do you need from a financial standpoint? What do you need from a, an expression standpoint? What do you need from a security standpoint? And then the deeper you get into it, very often you realize, oh, that wasn't entirely accurate. It wasn't entirely true. Um, and you start to have a deeper, more nuanced understanding of who you are, what your needs, you know, desires, hopes, and aspirations are. Um, for me, one of the really big surprises when we started into this work, I kind of figured, you know, there's close to 8 billion people on the planet. Well, there must be 8 billion unique impulses that, because we're all different, we're all individual, we're all special. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would be nearly impossible to identify and map 8 billion of these different things. You know, that's just the, that was massive. What I was surprised by was how quickly it distilled down to 10 universal mm-hmm. impulses that just show up in different patterns in different people, in different jobs, in different opportunities. Um, and I was I was actually really surprised. I thought it would be much bigger data set if we could even map them. Um, so I was surprised at how few really like primal and innate level impulses for effort seem to be the really big drivers um, of these big ideas. So that was one of the big surprises for me. Um, the other, the other thing that I really had to tease out also, like, you know, like you, you guys teed this up by using the word spark or sparked you, you know, and I had to really go into, well, what does that even mean? Mm-hmm. You know, cause there's a lot of ambiguity around language. What does it actually mean to feel sparked, to feel like you're coming alive by the work that you're doing? What are the components of that? What are the elements of that, that give you that state? So that was a whole nother research project that really peeled the onion of that, that state. And we landed with these five different components, you know? So when I talk about 
doing work that sparks you or that makes you come alive. I'm talking about work that gives you a feeling of purpose, gives you a feeling that you have access to that sort of magical time feud state of flow where the world seems to vanish away and you become utterly absorbed in the thing that you're doing, almost losing the ability to distinguish between you and the activity. I'm talking about the experience mm -hmm. of energy and excitement. So you wake up in the morning and you know, maybe this is going to be a 12 hour day or 14 hour day or 16 hour day. It's going to be a lot. And it's going to be a hard work. And yet there's something about what you're doing where you're still excited to do it. And even if you're putting in a lot of time and a lot of energy, it gives you energy back. The two mm -hmm. other components are what I would call expressed potential, meaning you don't feel like you're stifling yourself or showing up as different people in work and life. All of you is being brought to the experience and you're able to express all of it, your identity, your taste, your skills, your competence. And then the fifth piece is meaningfulness that this thing that you're doing, it actually matters. You know, it matters to you. It gives you a feeling of meaning. And what we found is that, you know, when you work in a place where you have access to those five different states, it gives you this overall feeling of being sparked. And that doesn't mean that all five are, you know, like pegged at a 10 the entire time, kind of like, mm -hmm. you know, flow in and out of them. But the more that we are able to bring into the experience of the way that we're working, the better we feel, the more alive we feel. Um, and so, so another thing that was a big awakening for me was realizing that um, we had to really get granular with the language that we're using because there's so much ambiguity in the space of trying to figure out how do I make decisions that give me that feeling that I want to have, um, especially in the context of work. So we wanted to get specific and really drill down, like, what is that feeling actually? Um, and, you know, what are the pieces of that puzzle? So, um, so those are some of the things that were sort of like fun to discover along the way in the research. Jonathan, I, I want to ask you about human nature. Hmm. Somebody takes this spark a type assessment. They find ultimately what, who they are and what gives them that drive and that passion and that energy on a daily. And then you have to battle the human component where, where some, where the easy thing to do is really not to be motivated or to, you know, lay in and, you know, just be lazy pretty much. Cause you have to overcome that. When you find that, um, how do you continue to keep yourself as energetic as you like, or excited about mm. the work that you do consistently, because I think that's the biggest thing. Like you can, you can be a good sports person. You can be, you know, great in martial arts. You can be, or you have the talent to, you know, build a business or build out a podcast platform, but then you, you battle with the, with inconsistency. So how, from your experience and everything that you've done, you know, being an award winning Arthur, building a, a top pod, two top podcasts, how, what helps you keep the, what helps you keep being consistent and showing up every day? Yeah, that's a question I think we all grapple with, right? So, and this is the beauty of this body of work is that because the components of it are, are energy and excitement and purpose and meaning and flow, these are all experiences that we yearn to feel. And when we do feel those, whatever it is that's making us feel them, 
there's this intrinsic desire to do more of that. So one of the fascinating things that we've learned about this body of work is that when you're doing more of this, like more of the work that aligns with your sparkotype, with these imprints, um, the idea of like having to motivate yourself, having to figure out how to show up, having to figure out how to do the work, it all starts to drop away because this is the stuff that you would literally do, you know, on the five to nine at night or on the weekends, simply because of the feeling that it gives you. Um, this is the stuff that you seek out and you exert effort sometimes intensely for no other reason than it makes you feel this amazing sense of, of being alive. You would even pay to do it. You know, fun example. So um, I'm a terrible guitar player, but I've always loved guitars for my entire life. So a couple of years ago, I basically, um, I, I found a luthier, a master guitar builder who and and I spent the better part of a month driving out to this rural rural um, farm country in rural Pennsylvania to work side by side with him 13 hours a day while he taught me how to build a guitar. So we were working hard, you know, like it's basically like micro construction work with wood and power tools and lays and all this stuff. My body was exhausted by the end of every day, 13 hour days, single break for lunch, and then I'd like rest my head on the pillow and go to sleep. For the better part of a month. And I ended up building a guitar. This guitar was very likely worse than almost anything I could have bought on the rack because, you know, like I knew where there was no glue and I was like terrified to <laughs> strum it in front of people and have it spontaneously combust. Um, not only did I volunteer to get up and do this and drive out there and like spend hours and hours and hours doing this simply because of the feeling it gave me. I paid a significant amount of money for the opportunity and the privilege to do that where somebody else was working at that same time at a guitar manufacturing company, building a guitar and doing similar work to me and getting paid to do it. I was doing it simply because it was a thing I couldn't not do and I was paying for the privilege of doing it. So when you talk about how do we sort of like motivate ourselves to do this thing, what we see is that the more you can line up the work that you're doing with these impulses that are inside of you, the more all of those questions drop away, the more the question becomes actually, how can I make sure that I'm not doing this obsessively and nonstop because I love doing it so much and it's giving me so much back. And you literally have to actually create these circuit breakers to pull you out of a process of letting it just almost like consume your life because it's all you want to do. So it's an interesting sort of like reversal of the point of view. And this is a conversation that we'll often have with leaders and organizations now um, because what they'll start to realize is that once you align, you know, if you're working with a team um, and you have everybody discover what their spark type is and then you have conversations around it and then you help each person figure out, well, you know, how do I orient myself on a team or on a different team or in a project or within the organization so that I can do as much of the work that aligns with the sparkotype and as little as the work that doesn't align with it? What they start to find is that you know, like passion and purpose and meaning go up dramatically. The, the way you bring to yourself to the work, you, know, like you start to perform at a different level. And what's been shared with us is that friction um, and the need to create external motivation kind of falls away because it's just not a part of that experience anymore. So it's been really interesting to see that. Mm -hmm. So Jonathan, are you now 
going to stop everything you're doing to become a luthier? <laughs> Let's just say I wouldn't be entirely surprised if maybe 10 years down the road, I've somehow magically figured out how to work my way into just doing that all day, every day. <laughs> so the reason I ask, Chris and I have had a discussion or have had discussions on this show many times about being able to differentiate your hobbies from passions that might actually be a fruitful career for you at some point mm. and how to know which of your hobbies maybe aren't just hobbies but are in fact your passion and you're dropping the ball and you should be pursuing it as a career so is there some way that you can kind of sift through all of these different hobbies you might have and say I need to lean into this one. There's something here that I think I found my spark. Yeah, it's such a fascinating question and something that I think about often as well. I'm curious at some point to hear like your take on this. But you know, for me, and I'm a lifelong entrepreneur also, like I I've spent a chunk of time in massive government bureaucracy. I've spent a, a, you know like time working for a big corporation. But for the, the vast majority of my adult life, I've worked for myself. I've started four of my own companies and exited. And so like I know the process of starting things and and asking those questions. And I also know the process of distinguishing, you know, between something that I just love doing, but the minute I turn it into my J O B, mm. all of a sudden I hate doing it. I have mm. built businesses that have ended up being, you know, I loved it when it was just my my hobby on the side or something I'd love to do. And then when I, I you know, I, I basically said, this has to pay my rent, this has to take care of my family. It took a lot of the joy out of the process. So I thought about this a lot. And like you, I, I don't believe that just because something sparks you means that it necessarily should be the thing that also um, gives you your living. I think when you can do that, when those line up in a way where it feels good and they're working really together, it's an amazing thing, you know, because then you just get to spend a lot of energy doing that thing and know that it's going to take care of you on a lot of different levels. But not everything actually is designed to do that. You know, there are some things where you look at that and, and either say, you know, I'm not going to, to do this as a way to make a living, A, because I don't see a really easy way to actually make that happen. Even if I'm getting creative and I'm getting unconventional, I'm trying all these alternative paths to try and figure out how do I make this generate enough money to give me what I need to sustain myself or my family or take care of my needs. Sometimes it's really straightforward and fairly easy and that's great when it is. Sometimes it takes some creativity and you can kind of like work on it and do it in unconventional ways. You, you can make it work. And sometimes it's just really hard and there's no clear way to do it. That doesn't mean it's not a valid pursuit. That means that maybe it's something that you allocate time that you just do on the side for no other reason than the feeling it gives you. But there's a second thing that I think we need to be careful about also. And that is what I was just explaining. Sometimes we can do something and it gives us so much joy. You know, it's, it's an expression of these deeper impulses. It makes us feel great. But then all of a sudden, when we say, and this has to generate X thousands or tens of thousands or hundred thousand dollars a year at the same time, it changes the way we experience that thing. It layers it with complexity and expectation and burden and struggle um, and judgment and sometimes shame when we have trouble making it happen that turns something that we're really joyful about 
into something that we almost loathe doing. So I'll give you an example of this. Mm. Shortly after I left my career as a lawyer in a large firm in New York City, I had been making a list of the things I thought would be really cool to do as a living if I could figure out how to support myself and my family in New York doing them. And at the top were different variations of blended fitness and well-being and entrepreneurship. So I ran a series of experiments. And one of them was I've always, I always loved mountain biking and rock climbing and being in the outdoors. And I had been a guest on a number of mountain biking trips and hiking trips and climbing trips. And I loved being it. Like when I was being guided by experts, and I said, I bet it'd be really cool if I started a guiding company that took people on trips like that. So we, we started it. I named the company. We formed it. We started advertising. We started enrolling people. And I remember this one trip. It was one of our first trips where we took people a couple of miles, a couple of hours north of New York City. And we were out in this beautiful environment and we're mountain biking with probably about 15, 20 people around a lake up through the mountains. And we were carrying all sorts of like different packs and supplies and lunch and all this different stuff. And about halfway through this, I'm realizing that I'm worried about everybody's safety. I'm worried about logistics. I'm worried about the food. Is it spoiling? Is it good? I'm worried about like, what about all these different, like, my mind was entirely somewhere else. It was on mm. all the business details. And it, it was really taking the joy of the activity itself away from me when I was trying to turn it into a business. And I realized, you know what, for me, at least, for some people, they may have loved that. But for me, um, it worked better if I just kept that as a pure spark where I didn't have any expectation about making it earn a living for me. And I figured out other ways to actually pursue my living. Um, so it was a really powerful lesson for me. And to be honest, I probably didn't even see that coming until I was in the middle of it. I'm like, oh, so just because you can doesn't always mean you should. Does that make sense to you guys? It does. Did you know that only 2% of the world's coffee beans are good enough for Don Pablo? For over 30 years, Don Pablo Coffee Girls and Roasters has been introducing Americans to the world's most delicious coffees. A pioneer in ethically sourced and chemical-free coffee, Don Pablo uses the world's best Arabica beans, hand-picked at the peak of ripeness for the richest and deepest flavors. Freshly roasted and naturally low in acidity, Don Pablo coffees can be found online at Amazon and at donpablocoffee.com. For a free bag of Don Pablo Signature Blend, go to donpablocoffee.com and put in the discount code SUCCESS. All we ask is that you cover shipping and handling. Now back to the show. And I actually have a question. Did this? Wow. Um, so how can someone test the spark to see if that's something that they need to do? I have, I have a, 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 a two-part question for you, Jonathan. So that's that's the first. How can somebody test it to see if, if they really should turn what sparks them into some type of monetary, um, you know, some some monetary thing where they can sustain their family off of it to see if they truly love it in that type of way. And two, since everything that sparks you can't become an income producing thing, uh. Is there, I'm trying to figure out how I can frame this question. Is there something, is it, to keep things purely a hobby, and let's just say you're doing something that pays you a great income, but you absolutely, like you said, like you just loathe it, you hate it, but this thing gives you joy, and you, like you said, you'll do it at night, you'll do it on the weekends, but that's because it's a pure hobby. At what point do you 
try to leave the thing that you loathe so much to see if you, you need to pursue something that maybe can potentially give you joy, but you know, you're not sure yet. Yeah. So, so there's a two, two questions, like you said, but they're, they're also related in a lot exactly. of ways, right? Yeah. So let's talk to the first one. Um, and which is like, how do you take this thing, which is your, like that thing that sparks you, like your, your spark type. So for me, let's say like, we'll say my primary spark type is a maker. It's all about making ideas manifest the process of creation. Well, the cool thing about that is that that could show up like a thousand different ways, a thousand different businesses, a thousand different pursuits and activities. So the question is, you know, like we start to drill down and get more granular. Are there specific tools or processes or materials or topics that like I've, I've involved myself in the past that have really been like nourishing expressions of this impulse? So like for me, I know, for example, I do a lot of my creation in the digital space, whether it's media, whether it's experiences, whether it's books, whether it's whatever it may be. And, and that's great. Like, I like that. That works well for me. But what I know about myself is the physical process of creation, using my hands, using my body, and using mm-hmm. actual physical materials for me is about the highest expression of this impulse for me. So I know that for me, I, I often will look at like, is there a physical making process that I can involve myself in? And then I go even deeper. So like the idea behind the guitar using that as an example is like, are there things that, that even in a more detailed way, I'm deeply passionate about, right? So I mm-hmm. go and I learn to build it. I say yes to building a guitar. Now, does that mean that I'm going to actually, be, you know, like to Brian's question, become a luthier down the road? Probably not, because I don't think I'll ever develop the level of skill, you know, that would then allow me to align that with the ability to sustain myself financially um, in the world. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I would. Maybe I could. Maybe I'd be happier. Maybe I reach a point where, you know, financially I'm taken care of enough where like I don't, I really don't need that to be a part of it. But if that, if, if I looked at that and said, you know, that had to support me. I don't necessarily see ever making a decision to center that as the main thing that would earn my living. But the the answer to the first question in my mind is you look at a lot of things that you've done in the past and very often there are a lot of breadcrumbs there that start to give you a lot of hints about how you might express it in very specific and unique ways. And then the only way I know to, to get even more detail from there is to to live you know, like what I would call the experimental life run a series of experiments where the goal is not I'm going to be a guitar maker, but the goal is simply let me commit to like a fairly short experience in the name of it giving me enough intel, enough data to let me know how do I feel about this? Like what's the sense of possibility I have around it? Could this actually become something that becomes bigger without grasping onto the need for it to have to actually work or have to succeed or have to give you money? Like your only metric in these experiments is learning. How does it make me feel? Like, does does it feel like it has a future? And the more you run experiments, the experiments themselves are going to start to to answer your questions. You know, I think there are some things in life that we can think our way through, that we can reason our way through, and there are other mm-hmm. things in life that we have to do our way through. And for me, I, I pretty much believe that when it comes time to figure out, like, what are the different ways that I might express my sparkotype. Um, so that it, it gives me that feeling that I want and maybe, you know, it also can support me. It's almost always just a matter of like doing a certain amount of thinking, but at then at a certain point, 
You just have to get out of your head and do and run those experiments in the real world, in real life. Um, so that was, I think, mostly your first question, but I think we segged a little bit into your second question yeah, also. Um, because I think, you know, like they, they kind of all speak to each other um, and figuring out like, what is that thing that allows you to express your sparkotype and can it actually support me in the world? There's a lot of thinking, there's a lot of planning. Um, this is all like similar to the work that you guys do. You know, like you can go through a lot of analysis. You can read a lot of research, mm-hmm. right? And you can put together a plan. But once the plan hits the reality of your life and the reality of the market and the reality of changing circumstances and uncertainty, you've got to just kind of tap dance with it and yeah, see what sure. it feels like along the way and, and what it's giving you and what you're giving back to it and be open to changing, you know, when it tells you like, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? For sure. There is a certain degree of stress that I think we have in our culture surrounding the idea that we need to be able to be fruitful and productive in order for us to be financially free and be able to retire at some point in the distant or near future. And I believe because of that, we might be a bit more willing to sacrifice our passions in life in order to make sure that when that day comes, we have enough diligently saved and invested in order for us to be okay. And I wonder if that is necessarily true or if that's more of a cultural thing. And the only other thing I would add to that is I've been to some places like if you're if you ever traveled in the state of Vermont and you'll go to these small towns where there's just craftsmen, craftsmen and craftswomen, you know, I went to a place where this guy just makes cheese in a cave. He's a cave <laughs> cheese guy. He just likes it, right? Yeah. The best cheese I've ever eaten. And then there's a farmer that makes grass-fed bison. He was just into that and then a coffee roaster and they followed their unique passion, their unique spark. And I've had some of the best meals in my life hanging out in that small town because it was a whole bunch of different people that followed their unique, unconventional spark. So I sometimes see it actually work if you just lean into your spark too. So I don't know if, if there's another way to live in that. Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating question. I think it's, the answer is nuance. I think sometimes there are certain things where there's a fairly obvious direct, you know, like conventional path that says, you know, like, this is where you develop a level of mastery. And once you develop a level of mastery, people around you will value it at a certain level. And if you're fortunate, they'll value it at a level that lets you support yourself. And then there are things where it's, it's a little more complicated. It's just not really clear if and when that will happen or even can happen. And then sometimes you have to get creative and say, well, let me do this a little bit differently and see if I can figure out a way. To, to make it happen. But I'm also really hesitant to make these sort of like broad sweeping generalizations that feel like universal for everyone because we all come from different walks of life. People have different histories, sure. different levels of access, different levels of privilege, different limitations, different constraints, different resources. You know, and if you came up in a home where, you know, there was, it, you, you grew up in poverty, you know, you're going to have a very different feeling about the importance and centering the role of financial security in your life 
than you may have if you came up in a like in a place of privilege where just money was never even like a, a thought for you and it was always going to be readily available. So I think it's always really important also just take people as they come and understand like we're all going to have different values and things are going to be important to people in different ways. And we shouldn't say anything has to be a certain way. Like, so I, I hesitate to, to make a proclamation that says all people should, you know, do this thing that fills them up, even if, you know, it's, it's going to be a lot more challenging for them to actually take care of themselves and save a whole bunch of money for retirement or put their kids through college, you know, because that just may be in wild conflict with the person's life experience and values and circumstances. I think it's important to honor where each person came from. Um, and because that, that affects the choices that they're making, you know, is it, is it, it, can it be an incredible experience if you can do all of them, if you can do everything that you love and make as much money as you, you love and sock away, you know, like plenty of money in your, you know, in your savings account, your investment accounts. Yeah, that's awesome. I think most people would say that's a great aspiration. Um, but it's also just important to, you know, acknowledge we're all different. We have different lives. Um, and rather than say like, this should be the aspiration for every person, Maybe it's enough for somebody to actually say, I came from a really difficult upbringing where there was a huge amount of trauma and uncertainty around money. Um, and it's really important to me that I create a future for myself and for my family where that's off the table. And that is an important enough value for me that I'm going to devote more time to that. And I may say no to some of the things that sparked me or really just do them on the side because I can't see an easy way for them to actually support my family. And security is that important to me. So, so, but I think the thing there is to really say, that's actually completely fine, but make the choice intentionally rather than just defaulting into it without actually thinking about it and thinking about what are the trade-offs that I'm making? What are the bargains that I'm making? Whatever it is, try and get clarity around it and make intentional choices so that you understand if I'm saying no to this one thing, this is why. And this is what it's giving me back, you know, in peace of mind or in security or in status or whatever it may be so that, you know, you can be conscious and aware when you make those choices. Does that land with you? Because you must, you must deal with some of these questions on such a regular basis with the work that you both do. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah. I think that um, I know speaking for me, it's funny you say that because in our field of work, you're trained to think that everybody wants the exact same thing. So you approach um, in the beginning, at least until you find like what your personal process is, you treat everybody the exact same, right? They want to do this, do that, do this. And you conduct yourself in that manner. And I think more, and as you grow and evolve and mature as a professional, you start to realize, you start asking questions other than the financial ones and try to get to understand the person you're talking to to see how they view X, Y, and Z, right? And then you act, you almost create a deeper sense of connection with them because now you're, you're speaking to them as if they're human as opposed to say, well, I know you want to do this at, at, at this particular point. I know you want to do this at this particular point and do, 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 right? So you're 100% right. I think that like Brian touched on it too, is we live in a, especially now in the digital space. And I know if you, it's, if you're not, if you're not, 
doing certain things in a certain way or you're not if you're not like 19 with your whole life figured out you know it's like almost like oh my god i'm 30 and i'm a failure and this this, <laughs> this person you know has businesses and this and they're being featured on x y and z and you almost because you see it so much on a daily basis you um, unless you unless you rid yourself of that jonathan you almost that almost becomes your psyche it's almost like it's it almost makes you rush to get to a certain point to a degree because you look at that on a daily basis so I agree with everything that you're saying. I, I agree. I'm sorry for going on that rant, but as it's no, I, th- I think it sounds like we probably all agree with that, right? Um, Pete, I, I don't know if you've ever been asked this question, but a handful of, of times in my life, I've been asked this question, like, "What would you tell your 20-something self?" Like, I think it's yeah. sort of like a common question, right? Um, and and my answer is some version of I would literally take my entire 20s to just run a series of experiments to really try and understand who I am, what 100%. matters to me, what fills me up, what empties me out, you know? And then I would spend the rest of my life figuring out how to orient the way that I invest myself, my efforts, my energies mm-hmm. in doing more of those things. So like, I wouldn't worry about quote, traditional success in my early twenties, especially like to me, success in my early twenties, is just really getting to know myself on a whole different level. Because then I have the whole rest of my my life to figure out how do I apply that in a way, and and know that if you actually apply it in a way where you're really aligning more and more and more of what you do in the world with that deeper level of self knowledge, so much is going to fall into place, and then you'll you'll have the opportunity to make those much better, more intentional, better informed decisions. Where even if you say no to something that could have brought a lot of money. Um, to your life and to your experience, you're doing it from a place of deep self-awareness and intentionality. And you know why you're saying no to that. And if you're saying yes to an opportunity also, like you really know why, and you're much more likely to actually succeed by whatever measure you're using when you make decisions that are just so much better aligned with the essence of who you are. Um, And yet that's never, it's not really taught. You know, in school, we learn whatever specific to our degree. Very often, it's just a lot of domain expertise. Very often, it has very little to do with what you're actually going to do when you get out into the world. Yeah. I mean, even me, like I was trained as a lawyer. I spent three years in law school. And I can tell you, like I, I learned not a ton about the actual day-to-day practice of law hmm. in law school. It taught me how to think, which was great. Didn't teach me about how to practice. You know, That all came when I was on the job. Um, and I think, you know, I, I wish there was a, a class like in every university that was simply sort of a class in self-discovery, self-awareness, self-knowledge. Because mm-hmm. I think that that single class would be so much more useful than so many of the other things that we're supposed to sort of like check the boxes on before we graduate. One of the things that I find interesting about the digital media space is that there are more opportunities now for people with, let's say, a less conventional lifestyle to get money while just creating content surrounding their less conventional lifestyle. Like I think to myself, I'm following a young couple that lives in Alaska right now, and I just watch them can like (laughs) fish for hours, right? And then I look at the number of views they have on YouTube, and there's hundreds of thousands of views. I know they're making money while I sit there, watch them canning fish for hours, right? I watch a couple that lives on a boat 
they have a satellite internet and they sail through the Caribbean and I watch them enjoying their life in the Caribbean. So the thing that I'd like uh, maybe both of your reflections on is, do you think that that maybe the digital media landscape might end up changing what we might associate with conventional work? And is that a good thing or a bad thing or neutral? Jonathan, I'll, I'll let you go first. Yeah, I'm, I, man, I was hope, I was hoping you go first. I'm oh, yeah, okay. so curious no. what your opinion is, Chris. Yeah, <laughs> no, for sure. No, I'll go for sure. I think yeah, yeah. that um, in terms of changing what we do traditionally as work, I think that there comes a time, and it's going to continue to evolve, where the evolution of things isn't really, um isn't really necessarily bad depending on what you're doing. Cause right now we live in an age of attention, right? You don't necessarily have to be doing something like, for example, Jonathan, his podcast, good life project, you know, is, is doing good for the world based on the people he taught, he's talked to that have achieved success and things of that nature. So that attention with people listen to that can get something from that. And I'm pretty sure a lot of things monetarily come from that. Right in the media space. But then you have other mediums that maybe get as much attention as Jonathan or more, but it's not really doing anything. It's almost like a mind numbing kind of thing. Right. Mm. And with the invention of technology, it's almost like back in the day, right? People who used to make horse carriages because that's how people train, you know, like used to, you know, used to move around and transport. And I'm pretty sure when the car came along, you're like, oh, you know, I remember when I used to, I mean, well, it was, it, it, this is the real work, building a nice carriage. And then and then it's like, well, no, we can move from point A to point B much faster because of the, you know, invention automobile, of the yeah. automobile. Right. And then I'm pretty sure the carriage makers were looking at the automobile. It's like this. this that's never going to work. A people is too complicated and people like their tradition. But then everybody now has a car. Right. So, but from from your standpoint, I think that it could be a good and a bad thing because of what's rewarded. Like mm. if you're doing something that's not really productive, like for example, if you just, if you jump off houses and break your bones, then you get 10 million views and you do that consistently and you're getting compensated for that because of the attention you have, right. is that doing a service? And it's not because you're hurting yourself, but you have the attention, but you're hurting yourself. But so that's how I, I look at this whole thing. Yeah, I, I, those are such great points. Um, as you're saying that, a study that I read four or five years ago popped into my head where um, college students were asked, would you rather be the president of Harvard or J-Lo's assistant? The vast majority said they'd rather be J-Lo's assistant. Um, mm -hmm. By the way, like before even like next behind J-Lo's assistant, even before like the president of Harvard, was also Jesus Christ. Would you rather be Jesus Christ? Wow. Um, they oh, took wow. JLo's assistant over that. <laughs> um, wow. So the, it's a really interesting statement on the level that the aspiration towards fame, mm -hmm. for fame's sake, not because of something like some value you've created, but fame for no other reason than fame's sake, has played and continues to play in the aspiration of generations that are rising up right now in the digital space where that seems to be like the dominant ethos. That said, I do see this sort of like the pendulum, I feel like is swinging back the other way towards value, like you were saying, Chris, in that, you know, 
three, four years ago, the big thing that people were talking about when they looked at social media was the quote, influencer economy. Mm-hmm. They don't call mm-hmm. it the influencer economy anymore. The catchphrase now is the creator economy. Exactly, yeah. That's a huge shift in mindset because it's shifted it shift away from, you know, like, let me be an influencer, which is largely about ego gratification and fame, to let me be a creator, which is what can I create that is of value to other people using these same tools and technologies. And that's the reason that I then be, potentially become famous or get compensated for what I'm doing. And I think it's not just a change in name. I feel like it's a change in ethos, a change in sort of like the way that people are stepping into that space. So Brian, going back to your original question, yeah, I, I think you know technology has made it both easier and harder in a lot of ways. And I think we're sort of like, we're moving so quickly through how to understand how, how to step into the space of tech and creativity. And I think in the beginning, it was like a big fame, shiny object. Mm-hmm. And now we're starting to realize that the sustained play in the space is how do I create value? Um, and that's why we're seeing more people saying the the creator economy rather than the influencer economy. It's not just about being famous and being able to influence opinions. It's about what am I creating that is of value to other people using the identical tools, the identical platforms and all that stuff. Um, and that kind of gives me hope in yeah, a small extent sure. because because I, I like the value shift that's associated with that shift in sort of like name conventions too. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for being here today. Again, this, I was, this, I was, I could not wait to have this conversation with you. Um, but Damn. before we go, you have got to tell our successors where they can find you to tell us about both of your podcasts, your book, Spark, just give them the works. Yeah, well, thank you both so much for inviting me to uh, to share some time with you. It's really been a pleasure to be in conversation, and um, I'm I'm super easy to find. Literally at Jonathan Fields anywhere in the online or the digital space. And the uh, Good Life Project podcast, the newly launched Spark podcast, um, is up there too. The book Spark bit, but basically, if you if you if you look for my name, pretty much anywhere, you'll find everything that's sort of like that wraps around that. Fantastic. Brian? All right. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us today. I got so much out of this conversation. I'm sure our successors also were taking notes and getting a lot out of it as well. So thank you for joining us, and we will see you all next time. This concludes another episode of Success Fundamentals. We hope you found today's discussion useful to your life in some way. Please remember to like, comment, and subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast platform and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook.